Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. So, hey crew, new year, new decade, let's have some new Pure Dog Talk promos while we're at it, shall we? Alright, our patrons group continues to grow and thrive. It's like the NPR of dogdom, it's so cool. And Pure Dog Talk offers you, my loyal listeners, an opportunity to get in on the fun. Pure Dog Talk patrons are invited to join a closed Facebook chat group just for you. And I promise you, no drama mamas, no keyboard warriors, just fabulous, supportive, pure dog talk fans. That's it. Each month, I pick a photo submitted by our patrons group to be the cover image on the Facebook page. You guys have seen it. And anybody with a quick question gets immediate feedback from moi personally, as well as input from the array of patron group members. Pretty fun. The patrons group also gets first dibs on podcast topic suggestions. So if you have something you want to hear about, that's a good way to do it. And to celebrate the new year, I'm adding a whole new technological challenge to my life. Oh my God. I will be hosting Facebook live discussions for patrons only on the final Monday of each month from 6 to 7 p.m. Pacific time zone. Y'all join us from wherever you are, but that's when they'll be. Just a few of our planned topics of conversation include advertising on a shoestring budget. (laughs) Yeah, trust me, we can talk about that. Campaigning a special just for runner handlers. Problem solving the stack. Tricks of the trade for grooming. Like, what products do I like or anybody else like? Open mic, Q&As, all that kind of stuff. What you guys need to know is that the generosity of Pure Dog Talk's patrons is literally what keeps the MP3s running here. The money is set aside exclusively for overhead and operational expenses. That's it. Now, I'm incredibly grateful to our corporate sponsors. You have no idea. They have the dedication to purebred dogs and the resources to ensure that Pure Dog Talk remains a powerful voice for purebred dogs. That you guys, y'all believed in this mission and you've supported it from the beginning. You are the heart and soul of my crusade to provide all purebred dog lovers a constantly growing, challenging treasure trove of knowledge in a 21st century format. Like a real world. So... Just click the Be My Patron on Podbean button on the website. It's quick, it's easy, it's secure. And I hope to see all of you on the next Facebook Live chat. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I'm your host, Laura Reeves, and I have a really great guest today. Patty Strand is the founder of the National Animal Interest Alliance. We've talked to Patty before. But I think right now the conversation in purebred dogs is really evolving and it's starting to include an understanding that all breeders, like all of us, right, we're in this together. 
And so Patty is the perfect person, as far as I'm concerned, to talk about why this is important and how we move forward with this conversation. So welcome, Patty. I'm super glad to have you back. Hey, thank you. It's nice to be back. I'm glad I'm the perfect person. <laughs> you are the perfect person. <laughs> That's good. Okay. Now, my understanding, and you'll help me if I've gotten this wrong, but my understanding is you were on the board at the American Kennel Club when AKC's involvement with sort of raising the bar at commercial kennels became a conversation. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. You know, the thing that's really important to understand, I think, for everybody is the fact that starting in 1900, almost nobody, except people who had dogs for sport, kind of the blue bloods, or people that had working dogs, owned dogs at all, pet ownership, as far as dogs was concerned, really didn't start until between the two world wars. And you can track this by looking at AKC's registrations, because they're like flat from 1884 until then, or, you know, maybe a little moderate increase, but they just start skyrocketing between the two world wars and then following World War II when the economic fortunes of Americans increased tremendously and homeownership became possible for the majority, you know, just for an ever-increasing number of Americans that's when dog ownership just really, really takes off. And right. bottom line is that AKC was really created in 1884 for people who were interested in the sport of dogs. And we had to acknowledge that the world had changed around us. Certainly, gosh, the number of people and the number of interest in breeding pet dogs skyrocketed. You know, where there's demand, there's going to be a supply. And there was right. just an incredible increase in demand after World War II. So. A lot more people breeding dogs and a lot more people wanting pet dogs rather than dogs just for sport or for the farm or for security and all the other great things that dogs do. So what happened was the AKC continued for many years to just operate the way that they had, and they continued for a long time to define themselves as a registry and the regulator of the sport of dogs in the United States. But sometime then in the mid-90s, and yeah, I was there, we looked around and we said, gee whiz, you know, we have, in addition to being responsible for making sure that the stud book is accurate, that was the big issue for the registry, was to make sure that people were actually maintaining legitimate records, that they were recording who the actual sire and dam on various litters, who they were. Right. And we said, you know... Right now, we have a policy that says that when we see problems, we will report them to the local agencies of jurisdiction, to local humane societies that have police power, animal control agencies, or state departments of agriculture, whoever it is in the state or in the environment that had enforcement powers. We've never had any enforcement powers at AKC, of course. Mm -hmm. So what we found was that it's a funny thing, working on legislation, I can tell you that the passion for a lot of legislation that occurs, the passion on the part of the lawmaker lasts only long enough to get the headline. There is seldom <laughs> the passion left over to get the funding or actually enforcing it. Right. And so we found that it was true even back then, there were a lot of laws on the books, but practically nobody with the funding to actually take care of it. So what we decided was that in addition to checking the paperwork and trying to make sure that people were keeping proper records as far as their breedings were concerned, that we would get involved in 
trying to improve the standards in the kennels that registered with us. There are commercial kennels, people breeding specifically for the pet trade rather than for the sport and for the preservation of breeds in a lot of different places, but AKC being the biggest registry had the most. And so we said, okay, in order to work with AKC, and by the way, not just for large-scale breeders, but for breeders across the board, we said, okay, we're going to get involved in trying to ensure improvements in areas that we see as lacking. And so we adopted a policy, a care and conditions policy. We actually piggybacked it on the existing policy that gave us jurisdiction to go in and look at paperwork at kennels. Right. So we said, when in the course of routine record inspections, you come across problems, you now have the authority to make recommendations, suggestions, and so on. And through several people that manage that department, starting with Bob Slay, and then he retired from Mm -hmm. AKC, and then Tom Sharp, who is the president of Reunite, the microchip division of AKC, and then Margaret Poindexter, who was also the general counsel, took over that whole compliance division. And what we did for many years then is we would point out problems. We would say, hey, you know what? This building is a pretty nice building. But winter's coming, and we fear that this building is not going to be warm enough when the winds of autumn and winter blow, and so we want you to insulate. Maybe it's just, you know, one area that was weak. Mm -hmm. Or we would say we don't think that the drainage is proper. And what we did that was really novel and that I really give AKC a lot of credit for is that, you know, when you're dealing with an activist community, there's no opportunity for people to get better. You're just judged exactly where you are. And the idea is that we're just going to banish you and get rid of you. And, of course, what happens with some of the legislation I'm sure that you're familiar with where they're banned, Right. there is no real exodus of the, of the problem. They simply go to <laughs> right. registries or they right. go underground or they go online to Craigslist or whatever. So we actually made real animal welfare improvements because we said, listen, if you want to continue to register with the American Kennel Club, we're going to ask you to do X, Y, Z. And then we'll come back in 90 days and we will, you know, remove this little checkmark from the kennel inspection. We did that for a long time. Frankly, there were people that left us. They felt that we were being too intrusive at that point. Mm. But the changes that have occurred in the last, that was in 1996 that we passed that policy. And by the way, AKC funded that policy for over a million dollars a year. Right. We took on, we created two new positions that were basically breeder field reps, people who actually know something about breeding, not just people who know something about the law and policies and how to write a good policy, but people who actually understand husbandry, which is, you know, the lost art in the century we live in. And these were also people who were from the dog fancy, so they knew the practices that the hobby breeders held dear and thought were very, very important. And over a long period of time, the standards in the kennels and so on have been raised tremendously. But I think what's even more important is that there is a wide understanding of the importance of socialization, the importance of having good yards for dogs to play in so that they're not by themselves in a dog run, indoor or outdoor access. And then Health testing, my gosh, you know, one of the things, uh, the two AKC breeder field reps are my personal heroes, I have to tell you, because their hearts are so in this, they do such a wonderful job, 
And one of the things that they do is they promote health clinics. And last year in the U.S., there were 20 health clinics. They go two or three days. And in order for the veterinarians that come in to really, you know, have work to do all this time, they're usually about 500 dogs each, each one of these. So I think that the big growth in uh, genetic testing and in OFA x-rays and all of the things that OFA keeps track of, there's just a tremendous growth in that world. And it's something I think that we can be very, very proud of. There are a lot of other forces out there that are positive, and I would say leading among those forces are actually the breeders themselves. I think a lot of times different organizations, and I haven't seen AKC do this, but I have seen activist organizations, if there are improvements, you know, really take credit for whatever happened. But the fact is there is a passion among the commercial breeders today to do a better job and to learn how to do a better job. One of our board members, and I think you've introduced her several times, Marty Greer is a veterinarian. Correct. She gives a lot of seminars, a lot of health seminars, yep. veterinary care type seminars in the commercial dog breeding world. And she says she never has a more attentive audience. These people are taking notes and they're asking questions. Hmm. They're excited about breeding. They're excited about husbandry. So just a ton of really positive changes have taken place. I think one of the most important things that has happened is there was a man by the name of Andrew Hunt. Yes. And because he had an extremely large commercial dog breeding and distributing operation, He was made to be the devil incarnate by people who were against commercial. Yes, we've all heard the name. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But ironically or interestingly or just fairly, I have to say that there were a number of things that he added to the repertoire of breeders that he started to make as part of the culture were when people brought dogs to him, commercial breeders brought dogs to him for distribution, He added requirements. He had a veterinarian there checking. They were checking for overall health, but also for things like hernias, for things like luxating patellas, and also for how well they conformed with the breed standard. Interesting. And these were like novel. Nobody else was doing this at the time he did. And when was this, Patty? We passed the policy in 1996. Then in 2001, we went out into the field. We went and we visited kennels. We visited the Hunt establishment, and we visited a number of pet stores. And that would have been 2001. Mm -hmm. So what we were doing at that time was evaluating whether the program that we had instituted was having a positive effect, just basically trying to grade our own program. And that led us to visiting his establishment. It was amazing. They had a kind of air cleaning device where the air within the building changed every 30 seconds or a minute. I don't remember which. But there were, from the standpoint of just technology and maintaining kennel premises in a clean way, that was something else that he had engineered that he was one of the first to do. But more important than even those things, although the whole idea of grading puppies carefully before they are placed in the marketplace and also not giving top money to people whose dogs didn't measure up, encourage people to go back and evaluate parent animals and not Mm -hmm. breed animals again that produce some of these problems. And that was really new at that time. I mean, to a hobby breeder, doesn't sound like it's so remarkable, but it was a big improvement, and I do give him credit. 
And then the other thing that he recommended that is still going strong today and that I think is probably the single most important change in that world has been made possible by USDA having the inspection reports online. Oh, wow. Yeah, that enabled us, and this was Andrew Hunt's idea, that stores could make as their internal policies that they would only buy from breeders who had no direct violations on their USDA inspection report. And I think we all know that the USDA standards are the absolute minimum. They are the kind of standards that would be in place for a lot of other species. And, of course, dogs are special. We're, they're going to become our companions, and so they do need some additional different level of treatment than animals in general for basic health. But the images of the really terrible kennels, and it doesn't matter whether you're looking at a picture of a commercial kennel today, if it's done by an activist group, they will show you a picture of a deplorable kennel that might have actually been common in the 80s, but which would never pass even USDA's minimum standards. There's just certain things in place that would not allow some of the kennels that they show pictures of to exist. Mm -hmm. So by requiring that the breed that the stores buy only from people that have no direct violations, it not only says that this store is paying attention to trying to do things the right way in that category, But it also encourages breeders to raise their standards because they're not going to be able to sell their dogs to stores otherwise. So I think that was one of the single most important additions to the repertoire in that time in history. Mm -hmm. By that time, we're talking 2004, 5, 6. And now, and this is just phenomenal, I had this experience last year in working on some legislation. I had a situation where a woman who owned a pet store asked me to help her, and she told me that she was doing everything right. Well, everybody's going to tell you they're doing everything right, and many of the people who tell you that, even if they're not doing it right, they believe they are. So Mm -hmm. at some point I just said, you know, I believe what you're telling me, but I need some evidence of what you're saying. She told me that she was sourcing only from people who had really good, clean USDA records and that in addition to that, she was buying puppies whose parents were health tested and she had everything she bought was also health tested. I said, oh my goodness, that's something. So I called her and I said, I believe you, but could you send me some evidence? that what you're saying is true. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not in favor of any particular category of breeder. I'm a hobby breeder. I love what I do. I try to do it well. But what I'm really working toward is trying to support people who try to conduct themselves in the best way possible with the information and education and materials that we have. So long story short is, yeah, if you can demonstrate to me what you're doing and you have a solid operation, I will try to help you. So Next morning, I get up and I have like 150 documents from this woman. Every single puppy she bought bought from somebody whose USDA inspection reports were excellent. And not only that, every single puppy she bought had parents who were health tested for the very things that the hobby dog breeder world requires. When you go to our AKC parent websites, the breeders that were working with this particular distributor were all going to the AKC and the AKC Parent Club websites and finding out what the requirements were for their breed and then duplicating it. So believe me, even five years ago, Laura, you would not have seen that. Right. That was mind-blowing, so exciting. 
And I just felt really gratified by the little bit of participation that I've had in all of this as these improvements have taken place. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Heads up, crew. Pure Dog Talk is thrilled to welcome Embark as a major sponsor of the podcast. So Embark Veterinary is a DNA testing service that's focused on helping breeders and purebred dog enthusiasts understand and improve the genetic health of their dogs. After using Embark's simple cheek swap process, breeders receive an easy-to-understand, comprehensive report on the genetic health, diversity, and the traits of their dogs. Cool. As part of this report, breeders also gain access to Embark's breeder-exclusive matchmaking tool that allows them to assess potential mates and better understand litter outcomes from possible breeding pairs. Extra cool. Embark makes it easy to understand your dog's DNA results by providing breeders with access to an in-house team of veterinary geneticists, extra, extra cool, for individualized genetic counseling and personalized guidance on how best to apply your dog's Embark results to your breeding program. From improving the long-term health of your breeding program to increasing genetic diversity in your breed, Embark is with you every step of the way. You know, here's an interesting thing. You know, we just went through this locally in terms of legislation that people propose that is without much question driven by the animal rights agenda to have selling of pets in pet stores banned. And that many people find that to be, you know, on first blush, wow, that seems like a great idea. So I wonder if you can speak to this because I have always found your way of addressing this to be really, really informational and really helped me understand why it's not a great idea. Well, I think that all of us hopefully are doing things better today than we did last year. And last year we were doing things better. We've learned a little bit more over the previous 10 years or so. And that's what has happened here is that the people who want bans, even people in our community, they're just living with outdated perceptions. And I think the reality is that we would all want pet stores or breeders, whether they're hobby or commercial, who are doing things badly and where animals are being harmed, not to be able to operate. I mean, it's just that simple. Mm -hmm. So with us and at NAIA, we're just all about conduct rather than categorizing people by, you know, putting a particular marketing label on people and then saying this label is no good and that label is good. I am a hobby breeder. I think that the hobby breeders, they're at the top of the class, but not all of them are. I mean, when people who call themselves hobby breeders operate using all the different criteria that they espouse, yes, I think that we belong to kennel clubs where we can learn. We have the wonderful advantages that are provided to us by the AKC, Canine Health Foundation. We have the tools that they've made possible. We have the tools of OFA. We have dog shows for the evaluation of our dogs. So we just, we've really had a, I guess you'd say a leg up in all of this over a long period of time. That doesn't mean that everybody who's a hobby breeder, everybody who operates under that umbrella or that label is doing everything right. We all know some people in our own communities that get into trouble for one reason or another. But it's the same in the commercial dog breeding world. And one of the things that really drew me 
to caring about them is that when you find people who are working and doing a really good job and wanting to learn more and doing a proper job, offering warranties, offering uh, good returns to the customer, only buying from people who are operating properly and so on, I think that it's just hypocritical not to accept that, that these folks are operating in a good way. The other thing too, Laura, is you have to understand. Earlier I mentioned to you that when you operate by, you know, what would you call it now, cancel culture? Yes. When you operate by just trying to ban those things that you disapprove of or that you think you disapprove of, you don't ever make the world any better. It's like prohibition. You just drive certain kinds of behavior underground where you can't regulate it, where you can't tax it. As long as there is a demand, there's always going to be a supply. That's the way the marketplace works. So what's happened in the United States is that through, we had a lot of problems. I lived through in Oregon when a lot of the really bad, big kennels were being closed. And many of the people in the kennel clubs had garages filled with sick animals that we took Mm. and rescued in. So if my perception stopped right then, I would say, hey, let's close all of them down. They're all bad. But it so happened that at my very first legislative hearing in Oregon, I also met a woman who I got to know the people that were down there. And I would tell you that one of the people I met who was labeled as a puppy mill because she had more dogs than maybe somebody living in a small house in Portland as a hobby breeder would have, I went to her place and it was like the kind of place that any of us would want to buy. It was so perfect for dogs, Mm -hmm. rolling hills and paddocks for dogs and on and on and on. So it was like, I guess when you look at any kind of prejudice, if you judged her by the fact that there were also really bad examples and we just closed everybody down and that just has never struck me as the right thing to do or the fair thing to do. As I listen to you talk about this, Patty, the thing that really strikes me is that judging part, right? Yeah. (laughs) And so I wonder if you can make the connection for us, for the listeners, between the ongoing attacks from both the animal rights community and our hobby breeder community on commercial kennels and the recent attacks on hobby breeders, where we see people's dogs being taken away from them who are active hobby breeders and draw that line, you know? I started to say, Laura, that one of the problems we have is we've had about 30 or 40 years of misregulation. I'm not against Mm -hmm. our group is in favor of sound science-based or evidence-based legislation. But the problem is lawmakers are seldom experts on husbandry. Right. And they can be shown pictures by activists that move them emotionally. They have pets at home, and if they believe that these pictures are representative of a whole community, they're going to act. And we have just decades of bad legislation. And what that has led to is that good breeders, and I'm not saying good breeders by category, I'm not saying hobby breeders versus Mm -hmm. anybody else. I'm just saying people who are doing it right have been eliminated right along with the ones that weren't because it was so broadly based a lot of this legislation. So I guess the bottom line is that the adopt, don't shop, anti-breeder community, animal rights movement does not distinguish among breeders. They believe that, and this is based on some outdated perceptions as well, that every dog bred is a dog that could wind up in a shelter and that it's a sign of overpopulation. Well, the fact is 
dog overpopulation doesn't exist in about 35 of the 50 states now. Not only that, there is a shortage of dogs in most of the northern states based on what is locally available. If the local community doesn't in some way bring in dogs, either through retail rescue, humane relocation, they will not have enough dogs to meet the demand that is there. So as a result of that, of course, we have all this mass movement of dogs, and I might mention mass movement of disease and parasites as well. And we have heartworm in the Northwest that we never did. The bottom line is that we are short somewhere between a million and a half and two million dogs a year in the United States. And so, again, it's one of these things where if you misregulate, you will just simply drive the bad players underground. But they have managed to get rid of a lot of the best breeders in the process. And I don't want to open up a can of worms here by talking about gun control. But a lot of times legislation that is designed to get rid of the bad guy only gets rid of those folks who care about the law in the first place. Right. So that's a real problem for our community. And if you look at the number of dogs that are needed in the country, I think this is an important data point to pay attention to. Yes. And I think one of the things I wanted to call attention to is the actual research done and funded by NAIA that has specific details and shelter numbers across the country. And I don't know that people really are aware of it. And I'm going to make sure there's a link to that shelter study in the blog post so people can see it. Very good. Yeah. And basically what it says is that only 5% of shelter dogs are even pure. And if you go to a shelter and you try to identify purebred dogs, these are obviously not very well-bred purebred dogs. I mean, sometimes you really have to stretch to say that they are. Interestingly, in the study we did, it was 5.0% that turned out to be purebred. But if you remove the dogs that were labeled as Amstaffs or pit bulls, mm-hmm. you know, the pit bull dogs that claim to be a registered kind of pit bull rather than the other 80% of the shelter that are sort of like pit bulls. <laughs> and if you get rid of them and then the chihuahuas, mm-hmm. you'd have about 3% of the right. shelter dogs. So it's not the breeders that are filling up the shelters. It never has been. When we first did the study, and as recently as last June, it still said on the HSUS site that 25% of dogs in shelters were purebreds. And clearly, that's just an anti-breeder sort of message, or, you know, maybe they just don't change their website very often, but it's the same number they had there 10 or 15 years ago. And in large measure, that's what we're dealing with is outdated perceptions about overpopulation, which was a big problem for most of the last century and the condition in which dogs are bred. And there are people still who are breeding dogs terribly. I mean, there's no question in my mind that you could go out and find a really, really bad example of a breeder today, whether it's in all categories too. Sometimes, you know, things happen to people. They become senile, they break a hip, whatever. There are problems that develop over time. But you could also find these things in shelters and rescues. Yes. However, the conversation is owned by the rescue shelter community at this point. So very often when I wound up doing a radio talk show or something, all that the host wants to talk about are the few incidences of cases on the breeder side. And I have to interrupt him at some point and say, why are you not talking about the 27 rescues that made the news last year? Or why are you not talking about the diseases that are found in shelters? Why are you, every time there's an example of a problem, in the dog breeder community, you bring it up like it's a real 
sign of ultimate failure, but my gosh, I just looked at a study. There was a pet store that was criticized for having Campylobacter, right. the most common bacteria for food poisoning in the United States, and it's usually from undercooked poultry or unpasteurized milk. But anyway, so this was cited to me as an example of why pet stores should be closed. But I just quickly did a Google search, and I found out that when a Texas A&M study was done in Texas, the number of dogs carrying this in the shelters were something like 70%. (laughs) It's just like, serious? Right. Let's look at the whole picture. Let's not just pick out our special scapegoat and decide that they're representative of the world. And that's really my big deal. When I see people, I don't care if it's in dogs or what it might be in, Laura, when people have changed their behavior, when they have raised their conduct, when they have gone to school and learned how Mm -hmm. something works, I feel like it is just a decent human characteristic to recognize that instead of pretending like it didn't exist or like it doesn't matter or like it's not worth as much as when you and your friends do it. Right. And so that's really the thing for me is just the hypocrisy and wanting to be fair. Yep. And then the other thing is... Wouldn't you rather have a U.S. supply of dogs rather than dogs coming in from China and other Asian countries where there are all kinds of diseases, including, gosh, corona now? But we've had dogs come in that have set epidemics for us in canine influenza. Our own shelter here in Portland had to be closed for a while because of that and other shelters up and down the coast. This was traced back to South Asian strain of right. influenza at Cornell. It's not like somebody's just making it up. That is where it right. came from. We have cases of canine brucellosis that were brought into Wisconsin, again, from a Southeastern Asia. So I just really believe that our job here is to acknowledge improvements when they've happened and that we should be working together to make those improvements so solid that we have the best pet marketplace in the United States, healthy dogs, well-socialized dogs, finding their way into American homes rather than screwing up our legislation so much that we have to bring in dogs from overseas to meet demand. It's just ludicrous. Excellent. Well, Patty, I really, really appreciate your time. As always, you are the goddess on this topic, and I just appreciate you tremendously. So thank you. I appreciate you, too. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers Desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.